0: I also want to mention one other thing. Giving records are in the foyer. You can pick them up as you leave uh, if you need your, your uh, want your year-end giving records. We'd appreciate that. And just to reiterate, if you've got a baby bottle with some change in it, bring it. Even if you can't fill it, bring it. We, we would appreciate that. You know, um, a lot of times studies are done and I often quote one study that I use a lot of times from uh, um, the Southern Baptist did a big study one time about why people don't come to church and some other groups have done some studies. So I have my own personal study that I've done on the top 10 reasons why people do not come to first church. Um, Now a few weeks ago uh, or last uh, late fall or early uh, winter, we did the top 10 reasons to be late to first church. Now we're doing the top 10 reasons not to come. Number 10, if I'm going to get hit up for money, I at least want a gift card. We only give gift cards to visitors. I'm really sorry. All right? Number nine, the pastor doesn't respond to my remote control. I know some of you occasionally, I see you. I'm talking, and you're like, and I know you're trying to mute me. It doesn't work. Number eight, don't come to church. I don't have kids yet. Number seven, I have kids. Two top reasons, two of the top reasons people don't come to First Church. Number six, people that happy just give me the creeps. I understand that's a common complaint. Number five, the last time I kneeled, I had a hard time getting up again. That's why we have no kneeling benches in this church. Uh, When I was a kid, we went to the Episcopal Church. They have kneeling benches. We would go, you know, like Christmas and Easter, whether we needed it or not. We were on time those two times a year. No kneeling benches here, just for you. You're welcome. Number four, I'm a good person, and I don't want to hear otherwise. All right? Unfortunately, that's going to happen here sometimes. Number three, prefer Doritos to those little crackers they pass out. I've thought about that with communion, but I just don't think it would work well. All right? just want you to know that there's a reason why we don't use Doritos for communion. All right? Fine. When I, Number two, when I want to feel guilty, I just call my mother. Right, I know that's a common thing. It's a common thing. Now, the number one reason—the number one reason people don't come to First Church—it's an amalgamation of three letters in different ways or different forms of three letters. Sets of three letters: NFL, XFL, NBA, MLB, NHL, C, B, D. Okay, that's. Uh, see what I did there? <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> this is just stupid, right? I understand that. This is just stupid. Every once in a while, I just feel like, okay, we're just going to have a little fun, then we're going to get a little... And uh, I know sometimes people get, can get like, oh, you joke too much. But uh, I'm sorry, that's just in my nature. And occasionally, I do things where I wonder, should I really do this? And that's one of them right there. Okay. So... Today we're going to talk about why I believe. Last week we talked about difficult questions that people face, difficult questions that people ask. And, and I want you to know, uh, if, you, if you were here last week, um, we went over some of those difficult questions, but that is by no means exhaustive. And I know for a lot of you, you have other questions that are difficult. People, people have difficult questions about a lot of different things. A lot of different things bother people in the Bible. And I want to say right up front, if you struggle with some of those things, For one thing, I'm happy to talk with you about it. I'm happy to talk. I don't always have all the answers, but I'm happy to talk about it. And so we talked about some difficult questions last week. If you weren't here, you can go to our website and listen. It's up on the website. And so I thought, just taking off that, I just want to talk a little bit about why I believe. And it's just a few reasons. There's a lot of reasons why I believe in Jesus Christ and have given my life to him. But here's just a few reasons that I think are are pertinent to me in my life and can be possibly to you in your life. But first, I need, to, I need to kind of, we got a kind of a long introduction because this is important how we set this up. So I want to start by asking you a question. Have you ever thought about how many different ideas there are about faith and religion and God that exist in the human race? There are Christians of a variety of stripes, there are Hindus, there are Muslims, and with Muslims there's generally Shiites or Sunnis. There's a few little weird offshoots, but those are the two biggies. There are Confucianists, there's Shintoists, there's Buddhists, there's Baha'is, there's atheists, there's agnostics, there's nihilists, there's humanists, there's deists, there's pantheists, there's new agers, and every one of them think they're right. And there is going to come a day for every one of them and every one of us when we're going to die and we're going to know absolutely for sure what the truth is. So what are the odds that I'm right in my personal belief? What are the odds that you're right in your personal belief? Because so many people have different opinions. So many people have different ideas. So why do I think I'm right? That's what I want to talk about today. And this is a troublesome question. A long time ago, a thinker by the name of William Clifford wrote an essay called The Ethics of Belief. And one of the statements he made that has become pretty famous is this. It is always wrong everywhere for anyone... To believe anything on the grounds of insufficient evidence. Now, he didn't say it directly, but what he's uh, writing about, what he's kind of talking about here, is faith in God. He's saying it this way I guess he's saying there's a lot of smart people who disagree with each other. There's no way to know who's right or wrong. So the only appropriate answer is don't decide, don't commit. Just be an agnostic, just be a skeptic. That's what he's trying to say there. And he is directly attacking Christians. And it, it, that was a big thing for him, directly attacking Christians who say, look, no, this is what I, and I believe it for a reason. He says, no, you don't have enough evidence. That's what he's saying. That's why it's such a broad statement. It's always wrong everywhere for anyone to believe anything. See, he purposely makes that so broad to encompass everything. There was a man named William James, a philosopher, who wrote a response to him. And he said this, He said there's some situations where being skeptical, being agnostic, that approach is not wise. And he said this, in particular, it involves a situation that has these three conditions. The choices you're facing are live, momentous, and forced, all right? So when we get to that, I'm going to try this again, right? I, I, I got a lot of flack last week. The choices, first of all, are live. That's an important thing. What we mean by that, with a live option, is it's a situation where you only have two options, and either option is plausible. You can't prove either one necessarily. Uh, uh, An example, all right, an example of this is, the idea, is it a live option that our next president will be a Democrat or a Republican? Yes, that's a live option, all right? Is it a live option that our next president is going to be Justin Bieber? No, that's a dead option for a lot of reasons. Number one, he's a Canadian. In case you didn't know that, he's not eligible, right? So so we have live options. We have dead options. And when it's a live option, that forces us to make a choice. Next thing is, he said, is the issue oh, I hate to write so much, is momentous, okay? The issue is momentous. I have this down. Why didn't I just do, okay, here we go. (sighs) I did that, and I forgot I did that. That's so terrible. Okay, so the issue is it's live, and the issue is momentous. That is, it's not vanilla or chocolate, right? Last night, my wife and I met with our our daughter-in-law's parents, and we had dinner together. And afterwards, we went out for a little ice cream, and we went to Baskin-Robbins. And I am absolutely, this is one of the things I believe, there will be Baskin-Robbins in heaven. I'm sure of that. And they had these flavors, these incredible flavors. And I had to pick two, right? Right? So I'm, oh, look at this one. this, oh, this oh. and I finally picked two. But see, the issue was not momentous, it's not like vanilla or chocolate, right? It's like, it's not like foam or no foam in your latte. It's not, the stakes have to be really high. When the issue is live, and when the issue is momentous, that forces us towards a decision, okay, and then the third one is, the issue is forced, it is forced. You have to make a decision. This is so important. A decision needs to be made. And so what, what happened, what's going on here is that when William James says, uh, this is in a moment, a decision is forced, he's saying neutrality is not an option because neutrality is simply a decision. To choose to not make a decision is to make a decision. So he says you're being forced into that decision. And he's saying you, this issue, this is, this is something where it's forced. It's like you're either alive or you're dead. You, you, there's no middle ground there, all right? A woman can either be pregnant or not pregnant. There's not part pregnant. You're one or the other. It's, that's your choices. That's all you can be. And so when we talk about faith and doubt, people often talk about these things as if it's some kind of abstract issue that they can remain neutral and make no choice. But the problem is this. You have a life, you have a soul. You will die and then you'll know. You have to decide certain things. You have to decide, what will I build my life on? You have to decide, how's my character gonna be? How am I gonna develop my character? What will it become? What cause will I serve? What legacy will I live leave? Will I seek to live on my own? Or will I seek higher guidance, some help? And these are all God questions, whether you think of them that way or not. They're questions that de- delve with the supernatural. They, de- they they point directly to God, and so you can't stand on the sideline and say, "No, I'm not going to make a decision here," because if you do, what you're becoming is a practical atheist. You're making a decision to one side, and I believe the greatest opportunity offered to any human being is the opportunity to trust Jesus, to know Jesus. To learn from Jesus to follow Jesus to love Jesus that's the greatest decision we can make and I believe that life and death and eternity hang in the balance of that decision for you for me for our neighbors for our co-workers for people we go to school with for people we see all the time you must choose each person must choose and if you've never chosen I would invite you to choose and so I want to tell you why I believe and what I believe, and, and it's, it's, it's not in any particular order, but these are some of my personal reasons, and I want to run through a few of them, and I know there are more. First of all, I believe that the way people argue suggests that God exists, points towards God. Now, this comes from basically from a man named C.S. Lewis, and uh, it, it's based on this concept that people argue. They do it, and we, we hear people argue all the time. We get in arguments. We hear people argue. My my wife and I had a discussion a while not too long ago about one of her daughters. Um, and 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 and, and you know there was it wasn't terrible. But here's here's what's interesting, in any argument, nobody says this. All right, and follow me on this, no one says this, do what I want because I'm smarter and stronger and a better arguer and I can force you to do what I want. That's not how people argue, here's how people argue. I do way more than my fair share of the work around this house and you do way too little. See, fair, we call these people husbands and wives. All right. He got a bigger piece of dessert, she got a bigger allowance, he did fewer chores, she got a later curfew than I did. It's not fair. She got spanked less than me. What? We call those people brothers and sisters, right? And it's based on fairness, right? You're a miserable boss, and this is a dysfunctional sweatshop, and I'm grossly overworked and criminally underpaid. We call those people unemployed, <laughs> right? That's the natural result. And, and C.S. Lewis writes about this in Mere Christianity. He says, when we argue, we say things like this. That's not right, right? That's not good. You're not being fair. In other words, we appeal to a standard that is independent and objective and higher than us. Right? Understand that? That's how we argue. We argue for fairness. We argue for justice and rightness. We argue, and and all of those point to something above us. Not just us. But above us. And so in our day, what we find, and many people in theory, this is what they do, they believe belief in right or wrong is just like vanilla and chocolate. You have yours, I have mine. You have your morals, I have my morals. Everybody's different. So we hear people say, don't impose your beliefs on me. And that's because we believe that morals and values are simply subjective preferences. That's where we're at in our society, in our culture. You have yours, I have mine. It's all just arbitrary. But when two people argue, that is not how they argue. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed in an argument, no one says, you know what, you're right and I'm right. No one says that. Your beliefs and morals are absolutely okay, and my beliefs and morals are absolutely okay. Nobody says that. Children, i got grandkids. What happens? One of them has this toy. The other one comes over and goes, yank? And it's, that's not fair. That's my toy. And the other one goes, you know what? You're right. This is not fair, and this is your toy. But I think it's okay, and I think it's fair, and I think it's now my toy. So we're both right. Let's hug it out. no. They go, let's punch it out. That's generally what, it's not, let's hug it out. And so whenever two people argue, they never argue like things are just arbitrary. We believe that that this moral reality is built into the way life is. And you know, Paul talked about that. Um, This is from Romans chapter 2. This is in the message version. I like how how they they do this passage. When outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct, they confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation, there is something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. What is Paul saying? People know instinctively. We know this instinctively. We can say morals are preferences that people have and what's right for you is right for you and might not be. We can say that. You know, I, I, I was reading um, um, Sam Harris. Uh, he's an atheist. But I noticed something that when it comes to the paychecks he gets for his books, he doesn't let them go to anyone else but him. Why? Because that would be Wrong. And not fair. And see, there's this something instinctive in us. And Paul's talking about that. Every human being, instinctively we know this, there's a way we ought to behave. We just know that there's a code. There's a, we may be fuzzy on some of the details some of the time, but generally there is a standard we all know that is true regardless. And the second thing is, we don't live up to it. We all fall short. We all need forgiveness. We all need grace. We all need to get fixed. And every time people argue, they're implying that the universe is not an accident, that there is a moral order, there is a law that identifies what right and wrong is, and that it's built into the way things are. And that's because it was put there by somebody, and that somebody is God. And the good news is he's a gracious God. That's part of why I believe in God. I believe in the existence of human beings, of personal creatures, argues for the existence of God. There is a man named um, G.K. Chesterton, and one of the reasons he said he became convinced about Christianity is because Christianity captures the fullness, the mystery, the contradiction, the paradox of life and people. He says, when I read the Bible, it is honest about people. It holds up someone of great faith. And then freely admits all their shortcomings and how terrible they've been, they were at parts of their life. Just read the life of David. And the Bible is blatantly honest about human beings. And he, he wrote about this. He said, you know, there's some approaches, kind of like stoicism, which, which are kind of pessimistic about human nature. Don't get your hopes up. Don't expect too much from people. And there's some approaches, forms of, of humanism that says man is the measure of all things. And they have an exalted, optimistic view Of human nature, we're going to keep getting better and better and better. And he says neither one of those fit. Neither one of those seemed to ring true as I as I saw people. He said the one that did was Christianity. It's it's not wildly optimistic. It's not wildly pessimistic. I mean, it's not optimistic. Not pessimistic. But it's not even a bland middle of the road. It goes to extremes. It says this: the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Jeremiah seventeen nine. And then it says this. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not been, not yet been made known. He's saying, look, this is the truth about us. This is the truth about me. And when I stop and I think about it, I, I know this truth instinctively. My heart is deceitful. My heart is deceitful. My father, one time we were... We lived in Washington, DC, and we were down by the Potomac River near some of the boat houses. And they had boats for rental and they had crews, some of the crew boats were there. And, and um, so there was some some rowboats just on the side of the shore. And I said, Dad, what would keep me from just jumping in that boat and rowing out and going wherever I want? And he said, because that's illegal, you, you have to rent those boats. I said, yeah, but the rental place is like 50 yards up this embankment, way up there. I could just get in and start rowing. Watch. And I said, look, I'll just row and come right back. And he goes, no, don't do that. And then my dad uttered something that he, he did a number of times in his life. Excuse my language, but he said, what the hell is wrong with you, boy? What's wrong with you? And I said, I thought about it, I said, I know what's wrong with me. I think of evil. I think of evil. I think of things that are wrong. I don't always do them. I sometimes have enough self-control. Sometimes not. But my, I, just, I, I still do it sometimes. I just think about how... Walking in 7-Eleven this morning. Somebody was there with their car, left their car on. It was a nice car. I thought, dude... I could just jump in that car, go around the block a few times, then get out and leave it. They'd never catch me. Now, probably they would, but I thought of it. Why do I think that way? Because the heart is deceitful. And some of you are looking at, (laughs) listen, don't judge me. (laughs) Your heart is deceitful too. And And if you don't realize it, it's because it has fooled you. That's how deceitful your heart is. So there, right? So the Bible says that about us. And what else does the Bible say about us? We are sons and followers of Jesus Christ, are sons and daughters of God. That's unbelievably good news. If there's someone I want to be intimately related to, it's the creator of the universe and the judge of the universe. Walk into a courtroom, right? Hey, Dad, what's up? The other side would be like, Oh, we might as well withdraw our case. That's his father, right? I want to be an an unbelievable privilege, unbelievable hope, unbelievable good news. I'm a child of the king. That's what the Bible says about us. And so it tells us this. It tells us this is who we are. It crafts all this truth and this wonder and this mystery and this darkness and this potential for goodness and potential for evil in the human condition. Naturalism says that human beings are just a collection of atoms. Some people believe that Darwin showed that human beings are just different in degree. In degree. Animals, just different kind of animals, just in degree. But not in kind. The Bible says we're a different kind of being that we're made in the image of God. We are possessors of a soul, a spirit. And in our hearts, man, in our hearts, we know this is true. I know one one of the things that kind of illustrates this is this. We never put an animal on trial. When someone is bitten by a lion, when someone is mauled by a bear, Or when someone lives in a sick, codependent relationship with a cat, which is every relationship with a cat, (laughs) we don't put that animal on trial. We don't sue it. We don't take it to court. We just say that's nature. That's the nature of a bear, right? That's the nature of a lion. We don't take a bear to court. We don't take a lion to court. Now, we may put the animal down, but, but no one will ever say that's, for, that's punishment. We don't punish the animal for acting like it's supposed to act, for acting like it does in its natural habitat. We don't punish an animal for that. We may kill it, and that's just to remove it so it doesn't get anybody else. But we don't put animals on trial. You think about that. Now, I know you're probably thinking, uh, of course we don't. But here's the deal if we say we're just another animal, why are we putting ourselves on trial? The Bible says it's because we are made in the image of God. We have a soul, we have a spirit, we are a different kind. Human beings are put on trial because they're not just a product of instinct and training. They have reason. They have freedom. They are moral agents. What we're talking about here is nothing less than the notion of personhood, this idea that is wondrous and mysterious and God-breathed and holy about a person. Personhood, that's who we are. Materialism or Darwinism says that people do not have a moral nature. They're not free. They're just products of causes and forces. But nobody raises a child like that. Nobody makes a friend like that. We know better. The existence of persons, of human beings, points to the existence of God. Here's another one. When you look at persons, they all have the drive to have a purpose, to have a meaning, to have significance. And I believe that our drive for purpose is another evidence for the existence of God. Because everybody you know, everybody you know, whether they, they believe in God or they don't believe in God or some sort of afterlife or spirituality or whatever, everybody wants to have a life of meaning. If you, if you don't think that's true, you know what? Just Google meaningful life. You will see a bazillion people that are helping you find purpose and meaning for your life. There's a million, probably more than a million hits. Everybody has that desire. Now, when it comes to making a choice, The key is, is the choice rational, right? And we're looking at the choice of whether to commit to God. Is that a rational choice? And every choice has two components. Now, this is where I don't want to lose you on this, but I think it's pretty important for us to say this. One part of the choice is that I say I have certain beliefs, and another part of the choice is saying I have a purpose, I have an intention, I have a desire. Let me give you an illustration of that, all right? Now we do need the board. Let's say you're going down a road, and it comes to a fork, All right, and this, and you're gonna go to Portsmouth. So you're driving down the road, you come to a fork in the road, and you say, I wanna go to Portsmouth, all right? I believe, I believe this road will lead me to Portsmouth. All right, and I make a choice to go down that road. Now, there's two components to this choice saying, is it a rational, is it a reasonable choice? First of all, is my belief rational? Is it rational to believe that this road leads to Portsmouth? That's the first part of the choice. The second part of the choice is my purpose rational. Okay? In other words, is there a good reason to go to Portsmouth? Is there ever a good reason to go to Portsmouth? That's the question. And that may or may not be rational, because to some of you I know, you think, no, that's irrational. Okay, so you see, does this take me there, and is this a place that I should go? See the two components of that? And here's the point. In atheism, in materialism in general, they would say that you can analyze the rationality of someone's belief. Is this a rational belief? But when you try to analyze the rationality of the person's purpose that's a whole different ball game because purposes aren't rational or irrational they're just whatever anybody wants to do there's nothing about the universe or the nature of reality that says that one purpose is better one purpose is worse one purpose is truer one purpose is more false than the other why because purpose is totally up to you whatever you find purpose in now, no one would say, whatever roads you pick is totally up to you. It'll take you where you're going. No, not necessarily. Because if you take, take this road, who knows where you're going? Suffolk, I don't know. But if you take this road, you're going to por- so, per- Portsmouth. <laughs> so, th- so is this the right road to take? I have to make a decision. Is this what I should be doing with my life? Going to Portsmouth? I have to make a decision. And, and atheism... And materialism says your purpose is totally up to you. So your purpose can be whatever you want. Greed, pleasure, status, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Whatever it is, it's your deal. But in our hearts, we know better than that. In our hearts, we know that to give our lives to unworthy causes is unsatisfying. It's irrational. It's not fitting. We know this. Why? Because we know at some level we're not accidents. We were made with a purpose. That's why we have a hunger for purpose. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, he says, this is where it's at. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. In eternity past... God knew you were coming and had things that he wanted you to do. You specifically. He wants you. I've shared before, you know, about sometimes getting picked when little kids picking for baseball teams and picking for football teams and everything, and the absolute humiliation of being the last kid picked. And having the two captains, you guys remember how this goes, the two captains choose back and forth, and the one captain says, it's your turn, you got Mosley. And the other captain says, I don't want him. He goes, well, it's your turn, you have to have him. Come on, Mosley, you're on my team. And just walking over going, man, I wish I could die, I wish I could crawl under a rock, I wish I hadn't come out to play baseball with these guys today. I hate being picked last. God chose You. And in some way, he chose you first. You are first. He wants you. He has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. He has things that he has purposed in eternity past for you to do. You are his workmanship. That Greek word is poema, which is where we get poem, but it's the idea of a masterpiece. You are his masterpiece. He can't wait till he's done. And so that here we have this hunger for purpose and meaning, and God says, I've got your purpose, I've got your meaning. Now there's a lot more of reasons why I believe. Um, I believe the existence of joy in, in a very unique way points to God. I, I believe the, in the last 20 to 25 years, uh, so important in, in, in my belief in God is my trust of the Word of God, the, the, the Bible. And, and in the last 20 to 25 years, we have made a, a, it's, it's an incredible leap in our knowledge of how accurate the Bible is. Even last week, something came up about archaeologists that it, a, a city that, that in the Old Testament they claimed was a part of the edge of Israel, and, and for, for forever now, archaeologists are saying that was never a part of Israel. Never a part of Israel. There's just no way. They just discovered Israeli government, uh, Hebrew government. Uh, regulations stamped on a, on, a, on a pot in that city it was a part of Israel and this is just that, that, this has just been snowballing it's unbelievable what we've learned that the Bible is a historically accurate book more historically accurate than any ancient book that is out there it's, it's, it's unbelievable so it helps us understand what God really said alright but my last reason close with this. God changes lives and our lives need changing. Jesus is in the life changing business. This is why I believe from the very beginning it started. People came to him. Sometimes satisfied people, sometimes unsatisfied people. Lepers, injured people, forgotten people, despised people, prostitutes, tax collector, admired people, wealthy people, religious leaders. There was something about this man, Jesus, that affected them and touched their heart. And one of those men was a man named Saul of Tarsus. He hated Christians. He was proud and vindictive and violent and arrogant and self-preoccupied, and he was a religious leader, and he was persecuting Christians. And one day Jesus appeared to him, and boom, he changed. It's a matter of the historical record. He became Paul, a man whose mind and whose writing and whose love for people and the sacrificial gift of his life to this world was so compelling it fascinates people to this day, 2,000 years later. He was a man who was not looking for God. And his life changed. We see lives change. The evidence of lives changing is, by Jesus is so abundant that it, it would be impossible to know. We have many that are like that even here. It can't be matched by anything else. And it's an interesting thing that I was thinking about I've never heard anyone say this. One day I realized there was no God. One day I realized there was no one behind reality, no life after death, and I realized that existence is a meaningless accident, begun by chance and destined for oblivion, and it has changed my life. I've never heard anyone say that. I've never heard anyone say, I used to be addicted to alcohol, but now the law of natural selection has set me free. I've never heard anyone say that. I used to be greedy, but now the Big Bang has made me generous. Nope. I used to be afraid, but now random chance has made me brave. I've never heard that. I've never heard the story of an accidental, meaningless universe changing a life. Now, let's be honest. I have heard some people who were oppressed in some form of faith that they were involved in, and to get out from underneath that form of faith, they felt a liberation. But I've never heard people tell me that their lives were dramatically changed when they learned about things like the law of natural selection. I've never heard anyone say, I find so much comfort in the fact that there's no story behind the universe. I found a meaningful existence from a meaningless reality. That doesn't happen. But finding this in Jesus happens all the time to this day, for 2,000 years. A debauched, despicable, despised slave owner and slave trader named John Newton meets Jesus one day. And he's overwhelmed by grace. And he writes a song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know, it's interesting, I I read a while ago a... uh, um, and I don't, it's not like I'm trying to bash, but it's a, a guy who, who is involved in a more, much more liberal um, um, denomination, and, and they want to change that word wretch. They want to pull wretch out of amazing grace, and they want to put something in that's not quite so negative, right? And I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute. The guy that wrote this traded human beings for money? That's a wretch, and he knew it, and he freely admitted. Don't soften that word, because that word describes him, and that word describes me. It describes me. I sing that freely. And many people here can give testimony of how your belief in Jesus Christ has radically ordered and reordered your life. There's a story, it's a, it's a true story, I, I should say that. Uh, there's, a, there's a man named Bill Moore. He grew up in poverty, got drunk one time, and he shot a man for $5,000. He was convicted of murder, and he ended up on death row. And a couple guys go to prison, because God prompts people to go to prisons, and they tell him, Bill, there's a man named Jesus who loves you, and he gave his life for you on a cross, and he died for you. He went to death row for you. And nobody had ever told Bill Moore that before. He'd been sitting on death row for years. He turned his life over to Jesus, and it changed him so much. It changed the darkness and the bitterness and the hatred inside of him so much that people were drawn to him. People started meeting Jesus through him on death row. He became known as the peacemaker in their prison. Churches found out about this. This is the craziest part. I I, I did some research on this. And there were some churches when people needed counseling. They told him, go see Bill Moore. I think if you called our church for a referral and we said, yeah, there's a guy in death row we want you to meet. He'd be like, I'm sorry? <laughs> what? There's this inmate there you need to talk to. Who does that? Who does that? Jesus does that. He was changed so much, he wrote a letter to the family. And he just told them, I am so sorry for what I did. And the family, it turned out, were Christians. And they said, we forgive you. And he started communicating with them so much that then they wrote the prison board and said, you know what, he's rehabilitated. And so his death sentence was was commuted. And then, as more and more people found out about it, and in the prison as it was found out about they started saying, so they decided they were going to let him out on parole, even though he wasn't supposed to get parole. And he was interviewed one time, and they said, Bill, what turned your life around? Was it a medication? Was it a rehab program? Was it a new approach to counseling? And he said, no, it was Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ. You know, atheism has nothing to say to a person on death row. Atheism has nothing to say to a person who's lying on their deathbed. Nothing. And so I know as we talk about these kind of things, there can be lots and lots of questions. And we can talk about Saul of Tarsus, and we can talk about John Newton, and we can talk about Bill Moore, more contemporary. But really, it, it comes down to us, it comes down to me, it comes down to you. You have a life. You have to choose. If you've never made that decision, I would encourage you to make that decision. Jesus has been giving that invitation now for 2,000 years. He's been telling people, you may have doubts, but you have one life, time to build something on it. Build it on me. And if you want to do that, you just say, Jesus, I want to do it. I don't know everything, I don't understand everything, but I know I have to choose where I want to put my life. And I don't want to take the risk of going through my life without you, so I'm trusting you today to forgive my sin and my guilt. I will try to seek you and understand you. I will trust your answers to my questions. I will make you the center, the authority, the foundation of my life. You can just do that on your own. We sang, oh, come to the altar. The altar's in your heart. That's where it is, between you and God. And if you have questions, again, I want to say that. If you have questions that you're not sure about or things that you struggle with or doubts, call me. I would love to talk to you. I can't promise you all the answers, but I can promise you I will look for them for you. And we can meet and it would be no problem. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you meet us where we are. You understand us fully. You know our hearts. We're told that Jesus knew the hearts of people. And our heart can deceive us sometimes that we don't even know our hearts. So help us to stand on the anchor, the foundation of your word. And then take that and apply it to our lives. And Lord, we thank you for the promise that you give us that you will change us from the inside out. Help us, Lord, to seek you with our whole heart. And we thank you that you promise you will be found. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering, and I want you to know if uh, if, um, if you're a guest here, please don't feel pressured to give. This is what our regular tenders and our members